I have a very important announcement. The name of this podcast is finally changing. I've been telling you for a long time now that it was going to, and we finally got things in place to make that happen. The new name is Product Mastery Now. The name change better reflects the mission of this podcast and my work, and that's to help you become a product master, developing products that customers love. You will see this podcast listed next week in your podcast player as Product Mastery Now, and the corresponding website is simply productmasterynow.com. On to the podcast episode. Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders, managers become product masters, gaining practical knowledge, influence, and confidence so you will create those products that your customers love. Now, product improvements and product innovation too frequently suffer from accomplishing less than we wanted. The urgent is often in the way of the important, and if you want to get the important work done more of the time, you'll find OKRs helpful. Also, if you've tried OKRs and you didn't like them, this discussion will help you too. We need an OKR expert, objectives, keys, and results expert to learn more about this. And joining us is the woman who wrote the best-selling book, Radical Focus, that tackles the use of OKRs in a startup culture with an eye towards getting the right things done. Her name is Christina Woodkey, and she's a lecturer at Stanford, sharing insight into human innovation and high-performing teams. She has designed products with LinkedIn, Zynga, Yahoo, and many others, as well as founding three startups and the online design magazine, Boxes and Arrows. And remember, if you want to go back to anything that you hear, we take detailed notes for you. You'll find those at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 338, along with a one-page PDF that you can download to put into action right away what you're hearing from this discussion. Now, let's talk with Christina. Christina, thank you so much for joining the podcast. It's completely my pleasure. I'm excited to talk because we are going to be entering one of the uh, zones that gets talked about frequently. That's the OKR zone. (laughs) Had had these sound effects here. So you wrote a book, uh, Radical Focus, Achieving Your Most Important Goals with Objectives and Key Results, which sounds like it could be an OKR book. How is this different than other OKR books? Well, it was the first OKR book. So I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing because I was definitely out there very early. I'd been, I had left Zynga and was helping some startups and I just saw how useful OKRs were for everybody. So I thought, oh, let's just put it into the world, see what happens. And what happened is it sold rather well. And then Ben Lamorte's book came out and John Doerr's book, of course. But my book is very different in that it starts with a fable, a story. And it's basically a fictional case study based on various startups I'd worked with. And I've just found that people learn really well from stories. Not only that, they learn things that you don't even possibly intend to teach. I used a story to tell, teach about OKRs, but I've had people come up to me and say, thank you for your book. I now know how to fire someone, which is hmm. a pleasant, unexpected side effect. And then the second half, of course, is more of the very practical, here's exactly how you do it. And I think that's another way mine is very different, is that a lot of business books are all stories of various things that people have done. You finish reading it and you're like, okay, now what do I do? And my goal was always to say, here are the best practices. It's not a religion. You can do what you want, but these are the things that have been proven to be helpful. I love that story aspect, right? Grounding it in a fable. That was one thing I appreciate about the one minute manager and, you know, who moved my cheese and those sort of things a long time ago. 
Yeah. Yep. And and cra- crafting what you want to communicate in the fable. I'm curious, since you did that, how has story shown up in your work? Are you, are you a person that uses story to communicate, to reinforce points? How do you do that? Oh, I do it all the time. Even in industry, of course, I used it for more marketing purposes, but also just to get people excited to really accomplish difficult things. So by telling stories of successes, of times when you thought you were going to fail, it really helped the team stay motivated. And now that I'm a teacher, I actually teach story structure to my students because it's a very useful thing if you're even writing something as simple as a report or creating a narrative game. Those, there are lots of uses of story. And of course, I founded the nonprofit Women Talk Design that's now run by Daniel Barnes. And we teach story as a form of presentation because the goal of Women Talk Design has always been to get more women on stage. So story is part of every part of my life, I guess. Yeah, I think it's a very effective tool. We've talked about it a few times on, on this podcast about using story to help influence others, right? Communicate our ideas and try to get more buy into those ideas and, and influence others. We, I think we're wired to appreciate story. Oh, 100%. If you think about it, written language, I think it's John McWhorter who says that if all of human history was a clock, we started writing down things at 11 p.m., before that, how did we remember everything? It was the oral tradition of storytelling. And so, yes, mm-hmm. literally our brains are evolved to listen to story. And that's why anecdotes are so much more powerful than data, despite the fact that we keep trying to use uh, numbers to convince people. You've got to put those in a story or nobody will really receive it. Well, very good. Well, let's put into some of your information the action for our listeners, too. And we are focused specifically on OKRs. This is a tool that many product teams have are using or have looked into or you know want to figure out how to use better. But first, l- let's kind of just start in the beginning and think about if we're going to adopt OKRs, what does that look like? If I wanted to tell my colleagues how this is going to help us get, you know, and we should be using this, what would I want to communicate? You're asking me two questions. One is, how do we get started? And the other one is why should we get started? So let's start with that one. Yeah, let's start with why first. So OKRs I've found to be very powerful for getting things done that aren't going to necessarily get done. So for example, if you think about the Eisenhower matrix, it's a simple two by two in which you say, is it important and is it urgent? And if it's you know important and urgent, it always gets done. But sometimes the things that are unimportant and urgent bump the things that are important but not urgent because there's a lot of anxiety and screaming about it. So what I've found is OKRs are really good for taking those things that are really important but not urgent and putting a sense of urgency around them, scheduling them, moving them out of someday to today. And so what you do with OKRs is you use them mostly for strategic projects that you really need to get done. And right now we've been going through a period of chaos, right? Some companies like Zoom are growing like crazy, Mural's growing like crazy. Other companies have suddenly been shut down and are just trying to survive. And there's a question of how do you continue to keep those strategic initiatives that are going to allow you to uh, create a more robust company? How do you keep them moving in this world of chaos where sometimes you're lucky and sometimes you're unlucky? And OKRs are really good at doing that. And you can always pause them. Something that a lot of people struggle with was, oh, are we locked into this death march towards these results? And it's like, no, you can call a code red. If everything's going crazy, you can say, let's just pause the OKRs for a little bit, work on what we have to, and then we're gonna come back to them. 
and that makes a big difference. Their, their a cadence makes them different from KPIs and SMART goals, which is you have your OKRs and you actually every Monday and every Friday, you touch them, as I say, like touching a lucky rock. You commit activities towards them on Monday, you celebrate progress towards them on Friday, and that's how OKRs actually allow people to meet their goals. Setting goals is nothing if you don't actually meet them. Okay, so why this is important is because it helps us get the important things done that otherwise might not be getting enough attention. So, and particularly with maybe strategic initiatives that help us keep moving forward. And we could craft, the, craft them for anything, right? For things that we want to do in our personal life, with our family, with work, anywhere. Oh, yes. I've been running my life on OKRs for the last six, seven years. And I went from, you know, a general manager in industry to an author, to teaching at California College of Arts, to teaching at Stanford. I mean, I am, I've got shiny object syndrome. I just am constantly distracted by cool things, but the OKRs remind me that I have things I want. So yes, you can use them personally and you can definitely use them in a big organization. Can you give us a, an example of one of those? What you actually did to help put that into practice for yourself? Oh my gosh. I think this last year has been an interesting one for me. Personal OKRs because I've, so I've been running OKRs and they're often things like, you know, get the new book out or I don't know, buy a house, what have you, figure that out. But I noticed that anytime, I, because I track them and every week I, I set priorities, activities towards them. And then I, when I don't make them, I write down why. And that's really important because what happened is I started realizing that anytime things get crazy, I sacrifice my health. And so last summer I said, okay, let's, let's get healthy because my back was hurting from teaching so much online. You know, I had these mysterious pains. I wasn't sleeping well and I did it again for an entire quarter. So I said, okay, let's set this again. Let's focus on health. Let's focus on well-being." And I, you know, went to the doctors, did more yoga, started working out more and it made a huge difference. And that failure, you know, that I had experienced first as my health was, being dropped when I was doing other things. And then to do it again, it really made me realize how deep this habit was built and how hard I had to fight against it. And making sure that I made it a priority for another quarter really got me to work super hard on doing the things I've been putting off towards that. And now I'm reaping the successes, you know, I'm a lot stronger, I'm a lot healthier, I can walk my dog. I mean, for a while, I could barely get off the couch. And it's turned around so wonderfully for me. So I think that for me, the big thing was the learning, you know, almost more than the OKR, although the OKR system allowed me to do that learning, which was I have this bad habit, and I don't take care of myself. And saying not just this is a bad habit, but it's actually interfering with my ability to hit my other goals was huge. Mm. It was a huge awakening and it made a huge difference in the quality of my life. That's really good self-reflection and good use of the tool and reflecting on why maybe you're not making that progress on the OKR that you expected. So I'm curious, then did you, have you created OKRs then to help you with your health? Oh, absolutely. And what's fascinating about that is struggling through measurement, right? Like what can you measure? So you can measure weight, but weight you can cheat on. So I wasn't interested in doing that one. Also, it's caught up in body issues and all that other stuff. So I started looking at how can I track my mood, my back pain, my, I, I, my what do you call it, BMI, you know. I picked mm -hmm. some measurements that I felt were fairly trustworthy, although now I'm starting to see numbers that suggest BMI is not great. 
But I think that's one of the things I see with my clients is they're going, how do we measure X, Y, Z? And I'm like, be creative, come up with a bunch of ideas. You know, if I can figure out what well-being means to me, and it doesn't have to be an absolute platonic ideal. When we work on things like customer satisfaction, we'll go through it. Like everybody just wants to throw NPS at it, move on with their life. But instead, I'm like, well, what are some other signals that tell you that people really, really love your product? And we can come up with things like word of mouth referrals, cold leads, you know, with a little imagination, you can move beyond NPS. And I think everybody has NPS fatigue right now. You know, you see one of those 10 point scales and you're like, oh, hell no. So... <laughs> Well, every time I visit a certain chain of hotels, which has been less less frequently, but actually uh, last week I was in a hotel, and, and I see the signs that basically say, only 10s matter, please give us 10s, right? Oh. <laughs> I'm kind of thinking the MPS <laughs> doesn't really matter anymore to that organization. But, no, it's uh, getting gamed hardcore. Yeah, exactly. Because that's not the truth. If you want to know what customers think, you're not going to say, please give us a 10. Right. <laughs> it's a little bit leading the response. Okay. So I, I think this is starting to whet our appetite a little bit in terms of the power of OKRs personally and professionally. Now is the time then to probably get into the steps a little bit. What, what do we need to put into place? I'm curious about this tracking on Mondays, Fridays and the like, but take us through that. Start, start from the beginning. Maybe if you want to put it in the terms of an uh, example, that would be great, but tell us where to start. From working with my clients, the first thing I noticed was everybody just wants or has already given everybody OKRs. And that's a huge mess. It just it's a disaster. I've literally worked with a couple companies who tried to implement OKRs and they did it so badly that the company basically rebelled and refused to use them. So I always say when you start to start with one product group, right, uh, preferably a high performing one because people love to copy success. I know everybody wants to use OKRs to fix their worst team, but really you can do that later. Start start figuring out how OKR is gonna play out in your company by choosing a really good team to use it. To set them, you the objective of course should be inspiring, but the key results, the struggle to measure things is always the hard one for folks because you know, most product people are people who like to make things, right? So whenever you see a problem, our brain immediately leaps to the solution. And so sometimes you have to talk people back. They'll say, okay, we need a new CRM. And you'll be like, okay, why do you need a CRM? Well, I think we're losing track of some of our clients. You know, some people are falling off our radar. And so we need a CRM in order to make sure we're not losing any clients. And I'm like, well, why are you worried about losing clients? And it's like, well, revenue. Okay, well, out of that, can we start digging in? Okay, let's take the CRM aside, throw it in our pipeline or our roadmap. Instead, let's really think about what are the results that would suggest that we were keeping our customers really satisfied and committed to staying with us, right? And so we might actually just look at that, like how many leads are converted might be one of them, how many people renew, it might be one of them because people don't tend to lie with their wallet and how many people you know, do word of mouth referrals perhaps, do introductions to other potential clients. So you always want to be thinking about what are good, strong, honest signals of success that aren't things that you can make happen by doing it. So if you can get out of your chair and walk across the room to do it, it's not a good key result. But if it's something in the world that responds to the activities you're doing and is a good signal of success, then that's a good key result. So once you have that first set, everybody freaks out. They're like, how many and how much? And I don't even know. And I'm like, yes, you don't know. Make a guess. Prediction, weirdly enough, is a skill that you can get over time by practicing it. 
So with that first OKR set, if you really don't really have the numbers, and gosh, I hope people are tuning their products for metrics, making sure you have the instrumentation in place. But if you don't, maybe that's the first thing you do. Maybe you need to take a month just watching numbers, or you can make them up and live with them for three months and then learn how wrong you were or how right you were. So those are two different approaches. One is just taking some time to instrument and get a baseline. But to be honest, I find that guessing is not too bad either, especially for small startups or an entrepreneurship. And then once that team's successful, you have your Monday where every Monday everybody commits to doing something towards the OKR. And you can ask people like, oh, why are you doing that? Do you really think that's going to work? What confidence do you have that it's going to be successful? In a good, healthy company that has psychological safety, the team members should be able to question each other. The problem with OKRs is that usually they're big stretch goals, which can be scary for people who are used to being punished for not making goals. But you want people to make stretch goals. So if people are starting to get depressed because they're not sure they're going to make the goal, on Fridays you celebrate progress. And it's really critical to celebrate progress. I had one company that said all we did was the Friday celebration this quarter, and it turned our company around, which I was laughing at because I was like, wow, I had no idea that that was so critical to the health of the company. And all you do, it's taken from an agile ritual of which engineers show uh, code they've written during the week. But instead, everybody shares, like, what's design's progress towards, you know, a new color scheme or logo? What's marketing's progress to towards uh, new sales or biz dev? Or maybe it's interaction design has a new, much better sign-up flow, right? So you have all these different folks sharing what they're doing. And you're like, I'm part of something, and it's really exciting, and I'm part of a team, and we're making progress. And that guy who I couldn't figure out why we even hired him, it turns out he's our SEO guy, and he's making more people come to the company. And it's just, it's such a beautiful thing. And so that constant touching base on our progress towards our OKRs are very satisfying, and they're very meaningful, and they keep the teams psyched while they're trying to do difficult things. That's excellent. The Friday celebration has so many benefits beyond the OKRs, which, which you shared that you had discovered as well. Absolutely. Uh, that's just recognition we all, all enjoy, right? It's yeah. a bit of showing off what we have accomplished and then receiving recognition for that. And it builds camaraderie and deeper trust and helps everyone move forward. I feel like, as you said, they're part of something that actually matters, part of something that's important. That's good. I'm interrupting the interview to share something really important. We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute, but I want you to know about an extraordinary system called the Rapid Product Mastery, or RPM Experience. In just nine weeks, you can have a higher-performing product team, meeting only 75 minutes a week with no travel required. One product leader, after trying all the typical training workshops, turned to the RPM Experience to get real change for his team. He said that this is the only training that provides an integrated product management perspective. It did exactly what I needed it to do. If you have a group of 5 to 14 product professionals, learn how you too can have a high-performing team in just 9 weeks, 75 minutes a week, without travel. This is the system created by Chad, based on his experience working as a product leader, coaching several organizations, and deeply studying innovation during his PhD work. Get the guide for yourself at theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM. 
Okay, I wonder if you could work a fable in here for us, a, a story, maybe an example of this. Like, as you're talking through that, I thought, well, is a CRM, could, could that be the objective, like, we want to put in a CRM? And then that sounds like that's probably not the actual objective, right? But maybe a, a, a fable or a story to make this a little more concrete for us, what might be an objective and then um, appropriate results to measure for that. Well, I would say that if we're going to keep going with the CRM example, the objective is probably to be our product is so, our product is so delightful and our, maybe it's customer service team. I mean, I start to hypothesis, hypothesize Mm -hmm. right now. So why are people excited about, so suddenly we have a company in my, my mind, we have this little company and they're doing B2B, you know, and they're trying to figure out how can we continue to grow? But of course, they're distracted by all the shiny things that are going on. And maybe there's an opportunity to do consumer and they're not sure. And they start getting distracted in that way. But the real problem is they're so distracted that maybe the CEO got a call saying from somebody said, you know, we were talking last week and you've totally dropped the ball and I can't believe this has happened. And then the CEO, of course, is really pissed off and they're like, well, folks, what happened? Like, how did we not get back to this person with the quote we should have been? And so often objectives are kind of born out of these problems that are felt emotionally. But then perhaps he, our CEO would talk to the head of product and say, can you can you figure out how many customers we've dropped? And this takes a product manager like three days digging through emails and, and spreadsheets. It's completely ridiculous. And so the product manager comes back and says, we need a CRM. And the CEO's like, what? And if it's a good CEO, they might say, why, why, why? And after going back and forth, perhaps they have an exec team meeting and the CEO says, I think our OKRs for next quarter should be around retaining current customers and turning leads into customers and which of those is more important. And this is where often I run into companies that have a couple of OKRs, but let's say the team of the startup has only got like eight people. How many OKRs can you really do with eight people, right? So then you might think to yourself, well, turning leads into customers is great, but if we can't keep them, maybe we should focus on retention first as opposed to converting leads into into customers. So let's say Q1 becomes all about retention, that everybody's gonna sign up again. And so the CEO might say something like, let's have our objective be, our current customers feel so supported by our services and software that they eagerly sign up. And again, it's the language of optimism, of aspiration, it's exciting, you want, You want your customers to love you, right? And so there's that. And then we can ask, well, what are the signals? And we can figure out what the key results are. You know, what is happiness? Maybe there are emails sent to customer service that are just, oh, thank you for your software. My life was so hard before it. Maybe that's an interesting one because how do you possibly make that happen without making your software awesome and your service awesome? And so you come up with some KRs and then maybe the next quarter you're like, okay, we know that anybody we send to us is going to have a great time. Our software is going to make them happy. Our service is going to make them happy. So now we're going to look at converting leads and people can come up with lots of ideas around that. Do we want to try a CRM? Well, before doing something big and expensive, maybe we want to do a small thing, like just have a single source of truth, like a single spreadsheet, you know, and then if that works, then you start to know, okay, what's next? What is the spreadsheet not doing for us? 
I think that people often leap to really big solutions because they're the ones that are in our heads because of advertising or whatnot. And if you're a little more vigorous with your thinking, you can find simpler, easier, cheaper ways to do it, or even possibly learn what you really need. And you don't go straight to Salesforce, but maybe you find some other CRM that's made by a small company that actually meets your needs better. Mm-hmm. So the thing about OKRs is they don't do everything. They really don't, but there's all these other things going on, right? Like your pipeline and your product management and your lean startup hypothesis and exploring. So OKRs are just part of a a larger system of modern product management. And Mm -hmm. I've seen some people try to use them for everything and they just, they're just a nice little piece of the puzzle. Okay. So so don't make them do things they weren't supposed to. It's not, it's not the kitchen sink, but again, back to strategic problems, right? Problems that need attention that aren't currently getting attention that we want to work on. And so I, I like the little fable you constructed us constructed for us here. Our our business concerned with customers leaving us, our churn is too high, and then dealing with, you know, do we work on actual retention or do we work on getting more customers and tackle them one at a time and try that. Also the wisdom to not, not make this bigger than it needs to be. You know, like I, I can imagine companies would easily respond and say, well we clearly we need a CRM solution. We don't have one. Well that becomes a whole project in itself. Oh, and now yeah. you're changing business processes on people, and you're you're maybe not actually addressing the problem that uh, is going on. I also like that this was did not feel mechanical as you went through it, right? That it's like we want this to be aspiring, aspirational. That this is something that we're excited to be a part of. And as you described, the the result in that case included you know expressing happiness from customers. And how how could we measure happiness? How how could we hear about this, right? Um, that feels a lot, lot just better, right? you know, so, somehow warmer to me than figuring out OKRs that are, you know, and I've seen these as well. Maybe, maybe these are appropriate in good cases, you know, grow top level revenue 10%. It's like, okay, how, how are we going to meet that objective? And, and how, how do you make that? How do you get people excited about that? So that's a key result. And that's something I do have have had arguments with clients because because I teach full time, I don't mind telling people the truth because I don't actually care if they come back. <laughs> I just want to make sure good things happen in the world. So I try to be very honest. And I've had people say, why can't our OKR be $5 million next year? And I'm like, oh, no, because the reality is that not everybody's inspired by numbers, which is really shocking right. to some CEOs. So that objective that talks about making your customers super happy and loving, that's something that's going to motivate the people who are maybe, it's often marketing design, a customer service, people who are more motivated by meaning. And then the KRs give the numbers to the people who are motivated by metrics. And that, I think, is something that makes it OKRs as a goal-setting format useful to get the entire company to know what's going on and the entire company to be pointed in the same direction or the entire team or the entire business unit, what have you. Yeah, and it's important to recognize how people are motivated. Right. I I only figured this out about myself not too long ago, which was why do I always push against objectives when they're given to me? Because I don't like them the way they're given to me. Right. I, I'm I'm wired to really enjoy the front end of innovation to you know uncovering that problem and figuring out how we're going to solve that problem, and and then once we have maybe a new product in the marketplace. And someone comes back to me and says, okay, now now let's figure out how we're going to grow market share 30% this year. Like, well, that's not at all interesting to me. But if you present it in terms of how do I help more people love this product, well, then I'm probably a little more interested. Right? So, Absolutely. 
Um, Positioning things the way that connects to people, I think, is really important. It really is. And not everybody's like you, which is something that's hard to learn for a lot of folks. We have to realize that, right? Okay. We talked about the uh, cadence a little bit here. I, I want to think more in terms of, of how we put implement this into a group. You talked about you know the, the Monday, what are we going to get done this week on the OKR individually, Friday celebration. But bigger picture, how do we, these get into a group? And the example you gave us a moment ago with a fable, you know, we had one. How, how long would we be working on that? How, how do we, how do, what's the cadence here? It really varies a lot, which is nobody ever wants to hear it depends, but that's still the truth. With that particular group, they're in a place where they found product market fit. And what they're trying to do is accelerate growth now. So it's not actually a super strategic objective, but it's a great use of OKRs to say, this is what we're working on. This is what we're focusing on. And this is how we're going to make things happen. If you had a group that didn't have product market fit, like let's say that a big company has a small group of folks that they're asking to be entrepreneurs, right? And the company's been thinking for a long time, maybe we should move into China. So let's say this is a a big company that makes beautiful notebooks and they know that China's appreciating of design and and half-crafted materials is growing all the time right now. And they're like, okay, we've got to move into this market but we're not sure if it should be our notebooks or our other leather products like bags or hats. I'm again, making up a fable at the time. So they say, okay, here's a small group and we want you to figure out how to enter this market. Well, then the group actually would chat a bunch and they'd go, okay, their objective ends up being find something that makes Chinese consumers fall in love with us, or maybe even smaller Hong Kong consumers I know they're not quite China, so or Shanghai consumers, something like that. At which point then they've got this question mark in their objective, right? It's still inspirational, but it's kind of a question. And then they might set up some key results, which is, you know, what are early indicators of success? And this is where we really get into lean quite a bit because they want to figure it out. They're going to try to run a bunch of experiments and hypothesis. So is it pre-orders? Is it cold leads saying, please, you know, can you start selling this at our local store? Is it, you know, you you come up with some key results that are good, strong, early indicators that you might have hit product market fit. And then you just rev on it. You run lots and lots of little tests. And every Monday you could be saying, okay, which hypothesis do we think is going to be the best one? Do we want to do a pop-up store? Do we want to position them in Beidou. I don't know all the search engines in China, so I wish I'd picked a different uh, <laughs> choice or a diff- all the sales channels. We're with you. But, uh, yep. you know, so let's say they've come up with some hypothesis, they discuss among themselves, and they start doing it, looking to see if they can start moving those numbers that they want to move. And by the end of the quarter, and this is the part we haven't hit, right? So the, this time the team has set the OKRs. They the general manager or the CEO is okayed and now they're revving on it. And by the end of the quarter, you want to stop completely and have a formal closing of the quarter. So you'll see in the literature, a lot of people talk about grading OKRs. A lot of people talk about scoring OKRs. And I feel like that's too focused on the number. So I've started talking much more about learning and it's really critical to get learning. And organizational learning is really powerful. Every time you do OKRs and you spend a good time, you know, maybe a day's worth of meetings for two hour meetings, something like that, to really have a retrospective, look at everything. So you can say, oh, we start to see a pattern. You know, here are the hypothesis that move the numbers a little bit. Here's some things that kept us from actually being able to make meet some of these goals or even run some of these experiments. And you go through that at the end of the quarter 
and then you say, okay, because we can't do this, this, and this, and because this, this, and this looks useful, you could actually have the same OKR again for the next quarter, but you're learning what happens. Or maybe you discover it's almost the same OKR, but one of the key results is, needs to be changed because it's actually a poor indicator. And then you just rev through that till you get there. And that beginning of being really thoughtful about what you've learned and then turning around and using that thoughtfulness to set up the next the next quarter of pushing and learning and discovering, that's a really powerful thing. Okay. So that's helpful to understand, just kind of framing this a bit, the, the quarterly basis, I'm sure this depends as well, kind of what are the buckets of timelines that you find that are helpful, right? So for our earlier example, we got product market fit. So we're just trying to deepen that. I don't know what a, you know, a six week OKR cadence may be fit for that. You know, more strategic problems like this quarterly. What are the timeframes that you find that's useful to say, we're going to run this OKR for this long and then see what we learn? Well, this is going to sound wacky because I'm going to go the opposite direction than you, but mm -hmm. I think all missions are actually five-year objectives. And I often think that when somebody sets a company mission, what if they looked at it as five years and came up with some OKRs for that? And this is only for bigger companies. I would never recommend this for a startup. Then you have annual OKRs. And this you absolutely have to have if you're a bigger company or if you are on long timelines, like I've been working with some biotech companies here in the Valley, and they really struggle with OKRs for multiple reasons, one of which being research is hard to predict. And that's where the exploratory OKRs, like the moving into China, become so valuable because they know that they want to have some sort of result that they can sell, but it's hard to know what the path is and what that thing is actually going to be. So an annual is really good. Medical is also good for annuals. And then you break it up into your four key results, and, or four, sorry, four objectives, your four quarters worth of objectives. And it's a way of theming your quarters, right? So if you have an annual one, you might want to say Q1, this is sort of my common example, Q1 is retention, Q2 is conversion, Q3 is acquisition for obvious reasons, I hope. But then let's say we, you want a faster rev. Startups, entrepreneurs, folks like that, pre or post product market fit, they usually are, are good with quarters. Three months is a really nice amount of time. There's a reason businesses have been working on quarters for a long time. It's short enough that you can remember what happened three months ago and long enough that you can actually do something substantial. I think six weeks would be the smallest thing I could possibly imagine being worthwhile to do an OKR in. I think that if it was your very first time and you're just trying to get your head around, do these even work and how are they going to work within our culture? You could do a tiny thing for one month, but I wouldn't recommend it as a normal cadence. It'd be more like, okay, we're about to do OKRs. Let's see if we can do it for a month and, and figure out where the system breaks for us because all cultures are different. So you, everyone always has to adjust the system that um, I suggest. So not, it's not a big thing. It's not a religion. You don't go to hell if you uh, change how you do OKRs. You just might not get to heaven either. <laughs> or you might, hard to say. This is setting things up now in a larger framework, larger picture, right? So overall mission, annual OKRs, kind of a big thing to work on, then maybe break that down into quarters. As you point out, organizations are often built around a quarterly kind of structure for reporting and thinking and everything else. So that makes sense. And then not have them be too short. Right. So you know, maybe six weeks is a minimum for some things that are well understood. 
Okay, that's that's helpful. One last question for you. Just any other, there's so, so much more richness in your, in your book. Any other tips about maybe issues that you've seen come up or other tips for actually implementing OKRs? So many things. <laughs> I it, It's hard to say. So set and forget is probably the most common mistake people make. They, they spend a lot of time getting the exact words of the OKR perfect and they take too much time doing that. And then they don't have the weekly meetings, you know, and if you skip the weekly meetings, you're going to forget what your OKRs are and they're just not going to happen. So why would you spend so much time getting your language just perfect to just not follow up on it? That feels very silly to me. And I would say bad or quickly written OKRs that are that you have Monday and Friday meetings about are going to be significantly more successful. For example, I have a group of women, small group of women who we send our OKRs to each other. And I had this one woman, she was like, I don't know, I haven't set them yet, but I, I, I'm thinking about doing this. And within the last two years of us sending each other our OKRs, and she never sent an OKR, but she would talk about what she was trying to do and what she was thinking about. Every Monday we sent these out and she ended up leaving her current profession, going independent, doing the same job, realizing she was better for another job and now has a full slate of clients doing um, her own company. And it was just because she constantly touched base and remembered, oh wait, I don't want to be stuck in this job forever. I don't want to be unhappy doing my everyday work. So I think holding to the cadence is really important. It's good if you can write good OKRs, but it's almost less important than just constantly reminding yourself you want better. So that's one big one for sure. I think too many people use OKRs as product management. Get those tasks out. They belong in a roadmap. Mm -hmm. They belong in a pipeline. I'm a huge fan of pipelines rather than roadmaps because then you have a long list of potential products, projects, excuse me, and then you're rating them based on impact and effort and confidence is actually going to work. And then when you say, okay, what are we going to try next to move our numbers? You have this, you know, robust list of things you could be doing. With a roadmap, I think you often get overcommitted to we have to do this at this time. And then the OKRs and the projects drift away from each other. And that's what I've been seeing a lot. And then, like I said, the last one is are OKRs the magic silver bullet that will fix everything in our company? And the answer is no, no, they really aren't. Yep. That, that last one I hear a lot is how can we just make things better by putting OKRs in place? But they are useful. And as you have laid them okay. out, they can be inspiring and motivating and get teams working on the same page better together as well. Absolutely. We both appreciate those benefits very much. As listeners know, we like a good innovation quote around this podcast. What do you have for us? And just tell you know, unravel it for us a little bit too, what that means. Absolutely. So I have a quote that you might not associate with innovation right away, but I'll tell you why. So it's when you're tired of saying it, people are starting to hear it. And I heard it first from Jeff Weiner, who was the CEO of uh, LinkedIn when I was there. And actually my general manager at Yahoo as well. So we've worked together quite a bit. And the reason I love it is because I think folks, a lot of folks like you and I and other product folks, we have this vision and it's so obvious. And we're like, but look, we could just do this and everything would be terrific. But other people take a little longer to get that vision in their head. Other people take a little longer to buy in. And so you have to have a willingness to repeat yourself. I will say as a dog owner, as a mom, as a teacher, I know repeating myself is incredibly valuable. Sometimes you have to say it in different ways so that different people can hear it. But the reality is you're gonna be tired of saying it 
by the time everybody catches up to your vision. And so you just have to suck it up and get used to the fact that you're going to have to repeat yourself for a while and just try to bring everybody along. I think communication is often forgotten as we go towards our blitz scaling visionary lives. And, you know, it's what holds teams together. I like that quote, and it is so true. And for innovation, too, when you have a good idea, everyone else will think it was a bad idea until it actually becomes theirs. Oh, yes. And you might be familiar with Nathan Furr's book, Innovation Capital, and he talks in there about how, how do we individually create our ability to, to influence others and have you know, innovation capital to get new things done. And part of that is what are you known for? Right, and you just have to be very clear ab- about saying the same thing over and over and over, so people understand, you know, kind of what space you occupy in the company or, or other network and what you're known for. Absolutely, appreciate you sharing that quote with us. How can people find out about the work that you are up to, and also about more about the book? Okay, so cwoodkey.com is always a great place to find out what my various books are and elegant hack is a site that I've had since, gosh, I don't know, 99 or something. And it's where I think. So if you want to see more of the half-baked things and what am I curious about and you want to see something about game design or storytelling, you'll find it there. But SeaWoodKey will be more of a home for OKRs and empowered teams. And the new book, not the new book, well, it's new in that it's rewritten. The Radical Focus, the second edition, will be out April 20th. It should be out everywhere. Amazon is an obvious choice, of course, but other bookstores will have it too. And we'll have the audiobook then and the ebook then. I'm really excited and happy that everything's just landing perfectly together. So, yeah. Excellent. And of course, if you want to learn more about things around OKRs, the team that managed itself shows you how all the bits you're missing. What was that last piece? The team that managed itself. So, so, so many people came to me about Radical Focus going, how do we do performance reviews? And how does this affect hiring? And how do we make teams be nice to each other and all that? And I wrote the team that managed itself sort of as a, it also has a fable, but it's a lot, it's longer and more fiction-like. And it's just a little deeper book if you want to go a little deeper. Excellent. Okay. I'll make sure the links to those resources are in the show notes for everyone to check out. Appreciate all the information, Christina. Thank you so much for helping us more think about what objectives and key results are and how that might help us. Awesome. Thank you so much, Chad, for letting me talk about this thing that matters so much to me. It's my pleasure. Thanks again for listening. This is where product leaders and managers become product masters, getting practical knowledge, influence, and confidence so that you'll create products your customers love. That helps you, that helps your customers, and that helps your organization. Find the written details of everything we discussed with Christina at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 338. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit TheEverydayInnovator.com.